The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Blue Apron. Blue Apron sends gourmet recipes and all the fresh ingredients you need to make them right to your door. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly proportioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card so you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com gabfest to get your first two meals free. And by stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 25th, 2015, the Carly, Scotty, Franny edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here with John Dickerson in Slate DC's studio. Hello, John. Face the nation. John Dickerson, that is. Hi, David. Squeaky voice, <laughs> John Dickerson. And you then said John really aggressively, so David, yeah, I, John had to. I had to quail like, Twitter and... back at you. Oh, really? Let's. And then Emily Bazelon. Was that aggressive enough? <laughs> Emily Bazelon of the New York yeah. Times Magazine. Hey, How are David. you guys? Are you guys well? Yeah. Was it just last week that we did the live show? Yeah. It feels like it was ages ago. It does. Wow. It was, yeah, I agree. Eons. On this week's Gabfest, however, past is past. This is the future. On this week's Gabfest, uh, Scott Walker, or as I like to call him, President Walker, <laughs> drops out of the Republican presidential race months before the first vote. Then is Carly Fiorina's rise for real. And then the Pope visits America. Is he like a giant panda? Is he cuddly but unworthy? Or is he the real deal? <laughs> plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus... David Cameron and a dead pig. What is that? What is that story? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Two quick announcements. First of all, our beloved intern Tarek is leaving, which means it's time for a new GabFest intern. This is a paid position, a paid part-time position. Uh, It's based in Washington, D.C., and it's a great job. It's a great, fun job. People have used it to jump into journalism, to jump into other things, and I think everyone who's done it had a really fun time. If you're interested, please... We'll just speak for them. E- email. Yeah, we'll speak for them. Uh, please email your resume and a cover letter about why you think you're, you'd be good for this to gabfest at slate.com. That's gabfest at slate.com for the Slate internship, the, for the Gabfest internship. The second announcement, on October 20th, Mom and Dad are Fighting, the excellent parenting podcast done by Dan Coyce and Allison Benedict, will be live in Washington, D.C. at the Woolly Mammoth Theater. Uh, John Dickerson is going to be the special guest, I hear. I've heard tell. John Dickerson. Don't tell anyone. Oh, I just told people. (laughs) I told people. You should get tickets at slate.com slash live. That's Mom and Dad are Fighting, October 20th at the Woolly Mammoth Theater here in Washington. Scott Walker rode his Harley-Davidson motorcycle off into the political sunset this week. Walker, who I and many other moron pundits had dubbed the likely Republican nominee, I thought he was, I thought he was bound for the White House, had sunk to zero percentage points in the polls following a very tepid performance in the latest Republican debate in California a couple of weeks ago. We can't really ask where his support will go because there is no <laughs> it has support gone. Left. It has. But we can ask where it went. John, his where did donors, it go? His donors, his staff. Yeah. He had two problems, only one of which was his bad campaign. Um, well, I guess it's a big – he had two problems. One was that he was a tepid, lackluster candidate f- as, uh, who had no second act. His first act was compelling. And as you said, you and I also felt like he had uh, a lot of the attributes that – uh, Republican primary voters were looking for. And he did in a world in which Donald Trump doesn't exist. But his first act was to remind people what he'd done in Wisconsin, which was to be the only governor to be to survive a recall. And that the whole central fight that he was engaged in was one uh, that was in defense of a conservative principle about unions, that he faced the fiery gates of hell and did not uh, turn back. And that's something that conservatives uh, had previously said they care a great deal about, which is constancy in the face of pressure. turns out now, and CBS did a a poll a couple of weeks ago, when you ask people what's the number one criteria, that kind of fixity, that kind of um, sticking to your principles against all comers has totally dropped out. 
and now the number one thing they want is business experience. So Donald Trump has totally switched around the way Republicans think about what they want in a candidate, which is fantastic because it means that the thing that they used to prize, which was sticking to your guns and never f- changing, has itself changed in their minds, at least according Do to that Do you think that's poll. a meaningful way to look at voting. a meaningful statistic a meaningful no. finding isn't it just that Donald Trump is ahead in the polls yeah, yeah, yeah. yes okay. ergo but it's just funny that the whole point of supposedly looking for candidates who don't change no matter what is that you presumably think that that's a good uh, way to behave and yet when a candidate comes along who you just happen to like for other reasons you'll totally discard your affection for sticking to a single principle and never uh, turning back because obviously Donald oh, Trump those has, voters a year out yeah, they are so fickle the uh, Donald Trump has and why shouldn't they be um, so anyway that's why Walker looked good the problem is he had no second act which is to say that when Donald Trump came along Walker just wasn't very either exciting or interesting his debate performances were weak his interviews on foreign policy and, and a lot of different topics were uh, weak, so that in a time when you needed to kind of stand up and make a noise for yourself, he was incapable of making a noise. And the other big problem was he spent a lot of money, had a huge staff, couldn't raise money to keep up with the organization he'd built. Emily, do you think that the death of Walker's campaign signals more largely what John was pointing at, that, that in fact, insider ability and governance uh, which you would think would be a real strength of this Republican field. There are a bunch of governors in the race or ex-governors, but that 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 in fact has actually withered, or did it just wither in the case of Walker? And that it, that you know Jeb Bush and Kasich and potentially Jindal or Christie will will eventually benefit from a desire to have competence or or, or executive experience. I don't think we should read too much on that front into Walker's exit bad campaign. Also, he didn't want to go into a lot of debt. Um, He's not a person who comes from a lot of money. And it just seems like he had a limit on his own exposure. And also, he's just one of several of those more establishment candidates. It seems to me that if the Republican primary vote returns to its more rational, normal self, then yeah, Kasich or Bush or Christie or Rubio or you know, Ted Cruz even, I guess, could will probably still rise to the top. I mean, I just can't take the Trump Fiorina moment all that seriously myself. And I guess we could throw Carson in there as well. And yet there's clearly a hunger for an outsider candidate, at least in this moment where voters can afford to be pretty mercurial because it's so far out. John, was it a surprise to people that he went so fast? I was a surprise to me that he went so fast. I, I mean, it depends when you. Um, uh, it depends when you decide. It's like the death of a terminal patient. I mean, you knew it was going to die, but you didn't think it was going to happen that fast. Um, la- after the last debate, I think we all didn't we say that? I can't remember where I, where I said this, but I think we were all in agreement that he had a, a b- very bad night. He needed to do well. He didn't do well. So. Um, but but in in terms of the level of surprise, even the people who were giving money to his campaign thought after the last campaign, uh, sorry, after the last debate, there was a big phone call with all of his donors. And there had been a lot of rumors swirling around re- whether Rick Wiley, who was his campaign manager, was going to be fired for um, you know creating this huge staff and not producing results. And that firing didn't look like it was going to take place. It looked like that was just kind of in the chatter among the donor community being picked up by some reporters. So they had a meeting and they talked on the phone and said basically, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to let the super PAC spend money in South Carolina and, and, and Iowa on ads, and we're going to kind of focus the campaign itself on Iowa. He had organization in 99 counties. And so that was what a lot of the people who were giving money to Walker believed on the morning he got out of the race. So they were really surprised when I talked to them on the phone um, that afternoon as everybody was scrambling. Um, And I think more broadly, the sense of surprise from, you know, a year ago when you looked at the field and looked at, you know, you wanted somebody who was outside of Washington, who had executive experience, and who had a connection to the base, both the grassroots and the fundraising base. Remember, he was the, the Koch brothers' favorite candidate. So, I mean, he wasn't just some, like, person people were falling in love with. I mean, uh, or random pundits were falling in love with. There was a real reason to argue for his candidacy. Um, and I should say, finally, the the fact that we're all surprised is um, 
that's what ha- that's what happens in politics. That's what I mean. Politics is and history is what surprises us usually. So uh, this is not whistle stop, John. Well, no, I'm just saying it's like this is what makes this is what what like the the twists and turns of campaigns are are what make campaigns. So Emily, where did the, he had you know twenty percent or so in the earlier polls? Now the polls three months ago were were even less uh, meaningful than they are today. But where did those people go? I don't know. Are they spread out all over the place? Just, you know, Trump, Fiorina, Rubio is a bit up since the last debate. Is that where that support went? I think you're right. I think it went all over the place. I mean, when I went to Walker events in South Carolina a month or so ago, um, it was one of the places where you had people who were kind of regular old Republicans, which is to say not you know, super hardcore uh, members of the base who were who were saying, oh, you know, Donald Trump is saying some interesting things. Um, and so uh, when you have people at a Walker rally kind of flirting with other candidates, that maybe was a that maybe was a sign. One other thing we should note, we should point out is that this, the power of the super PACs, again, in terms of surprises, right. this election campaign, we all thought I certainly thought that candidates would be able to stay in the race longer because of the super PACs. Yeah. Um, and that's not that's not the case. I mean, Rick Perry and uh, Scott Walker had super PAC money that they could have used. But you need those hard dollars to actually run a campaign. Um, because Although, you John, can't use it for what? What is it that you can't use the super PAC? You can't use for? it to like your organize staff. and your staff and um, and you can use it for a lot, but you can't use it for your staff and the and like your travel and the business of, of campaigning. Um, so, John, if Walker had run a more frugal campaign, would the super PAC have made more of a dis- difference? Because they were already like poised to run ads yeah. in South Carolina and somewhere else. Oh, well, uh, yeah, right? I mean, I guess if he'd run a more frugal campaign, he'd still be in the in he'd the still campaign. Be Zero. But he'd still be at zero. Right? zero. So it'd still be at zero. So if it's a bad, you know, the old line is the that you know the dogs are not eating the dog food. Um, I mean, so if that's the case, no, no matter how things were arranged, uh, the dogs would still be over uh, eating their hearty bowl of of uh, Trump stew. Um, so, right, but he'd be in the same boat as like all the other people. Well, yeah, I guess yeah. Well, really I mean, he'd still have a campaign. But, but then the question yeah. is, do you do you want to run a campaign? At zero. I mean, you, he, his plummet is extraordinary. I mean, he got into the race in July. So that's right. basically two months and you're toast. And, and the analogy is being made to uh, or the comparisons being made to Tim Pawlenty, who um, pulled out after losing the Iowa straw poll in 2012. But I don't think Tim Pawlenty was ever at the top of the polls in his party or mm-hmm. at the top of the polls in Iowa. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that he was never. You know, he he rolled a lot of dice on Iowa and it didn't work out for him. But um, Walker was seriously considered, you know, a possibility among lots of Republicans, whereas that was not the case with Pelini. Do, do you think he's done? Is Walker done as a national political figure? He's still governor of Wisconsin, of course. But but is this is this an abject enough dis- defeat that he really wouldn't won't be taken seriously again? I wouldn't want him to be my vice president. If I was the president, well, or candidate. Could, can, it, can he could he run in whatever the next campaign is, twenty twenty or something like that? I don't know. I think he's got to find that second act, and um, in his inability to find it in this context, suggests he might not be able to do it in another. But one or two successes in Wisconsin, he would turn back to being like the great conservative governor, and that's not a bad thing to be. I I I, I, I would like to pause and and you know, play the bagpipes um, around the grave of Scott Walker for a moment. Because, I, look, he's a terrible... <laughs> he's his, dead, his, his political views are terrible. He's been... I think what he's done as governor of the conscience is absolutely reprehensible. However, it is it is bizarre to me that here's this person who is who's a very capable politician carrying forth exactly the policies that Republican voters want. And, you know, he's not a great political campaigner, but he, okay, that's fine. No, but he, he was he very was capable. Lousy. He was lousy. But he's very capable. And, and he's kind of punished because he's just not a rich guy because he's well, a guy who wasn't rich. And he, and he, I think you're being too kind to him. He was lousy. He gave weird and hedgy answers to obvious questions. He, he wants to build a wall on the Canadian com- border. <laughs> yeah. His signature accomplishment in Wisconsin. <laughs> what? He picked the wrong border. Yeah, exactly. His signature accomplishment in Wisconsin bet. doesn't Darn. translate across the country all that successfully. Well, but the people would have been fine rewarding him for what he did in Wisconsin if he'd been a more powerful candidate. I mean, people aren't looking at what he did in Wisconsin 
and saying, oh, he'll do that right. specific thing for the country. They're saying he'll govern conservatively uh, and stick to yeah. his principles no, when and, he's attacked. Actually, I Emily, think that w- so you're right, Emily. He's a terrible can- candidate, and he, <laughs> he didn't do a great job. But it, isn't it sad, going back to sort of an – I feel like I'm channeling John Dickerson here. If, you're, if you want to <laughs> measure leadership and executive ability, you would think that conservatives would think this guy has been an actual leader of a state very boldly, very bravely, has accomplished some great things – and has a lot of guts, and people would have people would have liked that, right? I, I but I think that though that the on paper Scott Walker was the I'm the highest in the polls in July Scott th- Walker, not, and then he didn't he didn't translate not, beyond. But that, I know, right? but it's not the on paper; it's the actual lived experience. The guy has been governor of Wisconsin right. for X number of years, and well, yeah, has, but then has, he has was a lousy candidate. You don't get to overcome that. I know, but, but this is what he's lamenting. What I'm saying. He's lamenting. He went from being good on paper to being on the canvas. Um, I think I would add another thing to that, which is it's not just that. He didn't have money, that Donald Trump, who is at the head of the bus for the moment, uh, the head of the line, he's winning all the polls. Even, by the way, we should note, after the last after the last uh, debate in which we all agreed that he sort of disappeared for 30 minutes and, and thought that might hurt him. It turns out it didn't. Um, well, it hurt him it, a little bit. We'll, we'll talk I mean, about it, hurt, it hurt him a little bit We're to the extent that, that he, only, he only went up a couple of points instead of the five points or whatever that he went up after the last debate. <laughs> but um, the... Uh, the thing is, the, the around Trump is not only his money, but the, around Trump is a cult of personality that also uh, we should be nervous about, and that particularly conservatives have railed against on the, with respect to to Barack Obama. In other words. Uh, the, the affection for Trump is not really tied to much other than affection for Trump. And that's um, another thing we should probably be worried about, whether we're conservatives or liberals. All right. Let's hear from our first sponsor. This week's first sponsor is Blue Apron. Blue Apron, of course, is the new service that delivers all the ingredients you need to make incredible meals at home. Farm fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy to follow recipe card. So you can create a delicious meal in 35 minutes or less. You'll cook meals like... Smoky shrimp and creamy cheddar grits with corn, zucchini, and cherry tomatoes, or crispy eggplant pitas with beluga lentil salad and spiced yogurt. Discover a better way to cook. Visit blueapron.com slash gabfest to get your first two meals free. That's blueapron.com slash gabfest. Carly Fiorina surged to the top three in polls following the second debate of Republican candidates. She is now up with Donald Trump and Ben Carson, the three outsiders who are well ahead of the field of actual experienced politicians. Emily, why did she bounce? And is it a meaningful bounce that she's now up there with, what is it, a dozen or so percent? 12 percent, John? Yeah, Yeah. 15 maybe. It's not meaningful in any lasting way. I mean, she was a very powerful presence at the debate. I even liked her moment of battling back against Trump dissing her for her looks. And she had a really effective ad um, building on that same point. But her record at Hewlett Packard is truly terrible. Her distortions and falsities about Planned Parenthood and the video she claimed she saw, which does not exist in the form that she said she saw it, just make her very vulnerable to any kind of real scrutiny. And I also just think there is something unappealing about her if you really like hang out with her for more than five minutes um in a debate and that's why she lost badly to barbara boxer i mean let's take this back a step this is a person who lost a senate race to a not very good democratic campaigner well but in an extremely democratic state yeah and an an incumbent with some benefits yeah but i still feel like if republican voters are excited about someone with a business record do they really want to pick someone who essentially ran hewlett packard into the ground and her defense that you know revenues doubled is a totally specious defense because revenues doubles because she bought some you know made a bad deal in buying compaq not because she was like wringing more value out of that company all right john let's pull back from the Emily Bazelon hack job on Carly Fiorina <laughs> for a moment. You did, yeah, you've like you've, you've, you've done the Carly entire Fiorina. you've done the entire arc of Carly Fiorina criticism. You've done an entire like uh, like negative campaign against her in thirty seconds. I'm interested in All why right, someone she defend up. her. So what so, does she have to she, offer the Republican electorate? Please um, tell me. Well, I think the uh, I think she popped up because people are looking for politicians who aren't politicians. So. You know, between Trump, Fiorina, and Ben Carson, you got to kind of pick. Um, Too bad that, like, the three of them can't be rolled into one plausible candidate. <laughs> but I don't know. Do they even have enough strong points among the three of them that that would work? Well, it depends what you uh, I thought, count I, strong I points. I think she – look, 
again, I think she's wrong on everything. But I thought as a as a debater, it is true that she made stuff up, but she made it up with such authority <laughs> and such but that's confidence. Like, okay, but David, that is that was, supposed to have impressive. lasting value? Like maybe that's great no. for one night, but do we really want a world in which, like, oh, you make up whatever you want on the debate stage, and that propels you into serious contention in the long term? Uh, this is like the opposite of your point about Scott Walker. I know, and you really no, want I, her to be. No, I don't want her to be. I, <laughs> I, I also agree. I'm sort of loath to say this because I think it's very hard to say it without coming across as, as some form of grotesque sexism Sexist. and nastiness. But I, there's ahead. something like really off-putting about her that I find that I that right. just well, let's seems think of an adjective that's safe. We can't say she's shrill. We can't say she's strident. I tried harsh last week and got some criticism for that. And yet I completely agree with you. And there are other Republican candidates. I would say basically the same thing about, I find Chris Christie to be oh, really Ted, irritating Ted at the moment. Ted Cruz. Yuck. So I'll just throw in some men, but yeah, she is not a, an appealing, warm person, at least in the way she plays on camera. All right now, John. Now we now Emily and I have both acted her. <laughs> yeah. Even though I said I wasn't going to. So, so uh, yeah. Well, I mean, talk about her. Um, well, we've all talked about why after the debate people thought she did well, and that's enough right now to help you in in an incredibly soft environment um, in the Republican Party. But does it party. stick? I don't think Is it she sticks. Like, no. Why do you think it doesn't stick for her? I don't even think if it, it sticks for uh, Trump or something. Well, I guess I guess I would put it this way. I think. So if we think of this race as Trump and not Trump, where what lane does she pick up? Does she pick up a bunch of um, the kind of uh, more moderate establishment type of voter that... God, I hope they would, have more sense than that. ...would otherwise go for, you know, Bush and Kasich and maybe Rubio uh, or and Christie? Do they, do they think, well, you know, because that group of people, if they're even considering Rubio, Bush, uh, Kasich and Christie is not... Uh, so anxious to have a non-politician that they'll throw everything else aside. So for that group, you could imagine her record at, at Hewlett-Packard, which is her, in a sense, it's her greatest selling point that she comes from the corporate world. And yet for that group, it would be something where they like, yeah, well, you know, uh, unanimously fired by the board and not hired by another uh, uh, tech firm for 14 years is an insurmountable problem for that group. So if she's not going to pick up the votes over there, she's going to have to pick them up from the Trump Group and since she's in open warfare with Trump, I don't know. I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't last. I'm not quite sure how it falls apart, except for that there's just not enough room. That if it's a race of Trump and not Trump, she's not enough not Trump to be the uh, alternative who rises. Um, Does she get to be a vice president contender? You know, I don't know. It depends. It depends who the candidate is, because you know, if it's somebody, if it's Jeb Bush. Does he really need... Jeb Bush doesn't pick someone with such a crappy business record. How yeah. about Trump Fiorina? That would be just extremely entertaining. Yeah, well, say. that would they be... They could punch each other. That would be very uh, entertaining. And Trump might do that to... Uh, if he if he starts having trouble with women voters, but the moment he's not having trouble with women voters in the Republican primary field, so... So, John, you don't think... I mean, the other thing about Fiorina is there's, there's a claim, and, and there was a... I think there was a New York Times story about some Trump appearance where there... The, the crowd wasn't there, but the claim that she has finally sort of put the hole in the balloon and it's now starting to leak. And so even if she herself doesn't sustain it, that she has swung the ax that will that will end this campaign. <laughs> she swung the ax into the balloon. But I don't know if that's really Good what bounce. we see in the uh, in the polling, because what we see in the polling is him basically staying where he was going up a tiny bit, one or two points, which is meaningless. And then she's rising. So some of that's coming out of. Carson, some of it's coming out of other politicians, but it's not, there's not a huge chunk that she's taken out of, out of Trump. So to the extent that she's in the debates and closer to him physically because of her position in the polls and because everybody's listening to her and watching her in a way that they weren't before, she could take him down, but I don't know if in taking him down, it all accrues back to her. Mm -hmm. I think she potentially serves the role that, you know, when Gephardt, I mean, this is such a cliche, Gephardt attacked Dean, it helped carry. Right. That's what I was so saying. So right. that's, that's possible, but I don't, but that, I don't, but that didn't help Gephardt. So Emily, who was, who was looking at Fiorina's rise? What other candidates are looking at Fiorina's rise and saying, either this is terrible for me or this is great for me? I assume that Marco Rubio is saying, 
this is awesome. Good. Now Trump and Fiorina are going to bleed each other and and I'm going to be the yeah, and, and, rise and the polls have shown he, second to Fiorina, has gotten the biggest bounce out of the last debate. Right. I agree with that analysis. I can't really think for whom it's bad that she's taking away some of Trump and maybe, I mean, I guess Carson. Maybe Carson feels like he wants to be the alternative to Trump. I don't really see who else she hurts. Who and she did, she, hurt? take a, she did take a little out of Carson. Um, right. Who else I mean, she she's going to be like, she's popped up. She's like the flavor of the month. And yeah. then she's going to go away because people are going to get turned off by all the negative. But news, why do you say not that? Not even why, news. Why reporting about her business get, record. I mean, somebody has to win something. Somebody has to. <laughs> somebody ha- will be the Republican presidential nominee. Someone's going to win Iowa. Someone's going to win. Someone's going to win I mean, the I, answer. I think you could imagine a bunching where it's where in a little bit of time, Trump comes down a little, Fiorina sort of goes up, Carson up, you know, or everybody's staying around the like 14 to 21 point range. And you've got about so five or six Does one of them people. win Iowa, John, do you think? Or are you not sure? One so. of who? I think- uh, Those three yeah. folk. Yeah. I think, I don't, I think- that's a Seems great question. Like one of them wins Iowa. It does. It's a great question because Rubio and Jeb are not even close in Iowa. Neither is Christie. So and right. Kasich really isn't. So, so you know, Trump, Fiorina, Carson win. I think you could imagine Carson winning in Iowa. That ha- Carson has a kind of sort of quiet feeling that that could pull it off the way Santorum and Huckabee did. Um, he obviously also has the religious piece, but. Um, I don't know. It just feels like Car- if Carly Fiorina is having a well-deserved moment, but it feels like a moment. But, so you don't think there's any possibility that she actually becomes a respectable kind of go-to candidate? I mean, she, she you know, she's had a real career as an executive. Now yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not. And she's run for office before, and she has some yeah. money, and she's a woman, which is a huge portion of the electorate that they need to get at. I don't see why she might not have endurance. Because once people really spend time with her, they're going to discover that she was a terrible corporate executive, which is her main selling point, that she's lying or getting wrong major things that she says over and over again. And that as we're well, so is Donald saying, Trump. So is Ben Carson. Admitting, yeah, she's not appealing. Yeah, but David, so makes Donald a good, Trump. David makes so a good Donald point. Trump. If being wrong about things that you say was disqualifying, <laughs> there would be nobody running. I mean, this is, I think but this I is all presumed. But I don't think Trump is going to win either. I still feel like Rubio comes from behind and is like checks all the boxes I just laid out. He's not, I haven't heard him lie or get important stuff wrong. He is appealing and he has a pretty good record as a politician. Certainly not anything we've heard about that's going to axe him. Yeah. All right. But uh, I was all like you. I was pro Scott Walker. So I'm sure I'll be wrong about this, too. OK. So well, here's we'll the thing about, about the, here's the distinction about uh, between Walker and Fiorina is that you could build a case for Walker. I find it harder. I mean, just because of, you know, you could amass some facts that, that could come up with a case for Walker. I, I, it's harder for me to do that with Fearing. I don't know where. Right. She on paper is not a good candidate. Well, what do you mean? She's well, not no, a good candidate. She's a dis- I don't agree with you. No, I think. You I, don't care that she was a mess at Hewlett Packard? She was the most powerful woman in American business for a decade, practically. She was, and it's then true. she got fired she because got fi- she messed who up the company. Fired? Who I guess, got, but the point that the, the outsider <laughs> come hell or high water vote is right now sitting largely with Trump and Carson. And either she's going to take down Trump and somehow pick up those votes, but I just don't see her if Trump and Carson represent, you know, 46% of the vote, then the rest of it is uh, are the kinds of voters who are split with the other candidates and who might have pause about Hewlett-Packard and therefore aren't going to go rushing to her. And that's that's why it's hard for me to figure out where she gets her votes from absent a collapse by Trump or or, okay. or Carson. One last question about her, John. Actually, does she have a campaign in infrastructure? Yeah, it's not it's not as good as Scott Walker's. <laughs> um, um, she has a yeah, she has a campaign in infrastructure, but I think um, and it's early enough where she could still kind of keep going, and if she has enough momentum, she could get she could get enough of one. Um, I mean, I, I when I was out in January in Iowa. Uh, she was doing all the things you need to do as a candidate to meet with all the, the small activists. And by that, I mean, you know, people sure than five, seven, um, <laughs> the uh, activists all over the state and doing the um, 
work you have to do. Uh, so she's not just trying to kind of figure this out at the last minute. Um, but I don't know how, in, in truth, I don't know how robust her organization is. I just, I know she's been trying to build one. And, and if she catches fire, she should be able to, because she's now got a lot of like, there are a lot of Walker staff out there. And when you're staffers trying to hook up with a cause, you're a little more, uh, you can get them because in some cases you're paying them. You know, some staffers are mercenary. Let's hear from our second sponsor, which is stamps.com. Your to-do list can seem out of control. Oof, that is true for me and probably for you guys. So much to do, so little time. But there's one thing you can check off your to-do list going to the post office, thanks to stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer and printer. Stamps.com will send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage you need for any letter or package, any class of mail. You'll never waste valuable time going to the post office again. You can do everything right from your desk with stamps.com. Print the postage you need, put it on your letter or package, then just hand it to your mail carrier and you're done. Right now, we have a special offer. Use our promo code GABFEST. You'll get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Pope Francis is in America. He's been received like a surprise Beyonce album, like a Red Sox World Series victory. Washington came to a virtual standstill during his visit this week. It was covered wall to wall on the cable networks. The Pope met privately with the president. He visited with the poor and the sick. He canonized an American saint. He worked crowds intimately and warmly. He spoke to Congress. And as we tape, he's off to New York, where he will do some more of the same and talk to the UN. And Philadelphia, please oh, the city include of my city. Love. Yes. So, uh, Emily, his visit has clearly been a triumph. But why has it been a triumph? In what way is it a triumph? Is it because Democrats and liberals are so pleased that he's come with a message of, of action on climate change, welcomeness on immigration, uh, inequality? Or is it uh, a triumph for other reasons? I think it's a triumph for that and for other reasons. I mean, it seems to me like Pope Francis has amazing crossover appeal. So his approval rating among Catholics is like near 90 percent. And then among Americans, God, it's like, so. I think. What, who, what, well, no, what not Catholic being asked, like, do you approve of the Pope is going to be like, don't approve of him. Seems like a quick, yeah, but I think some people don't like the Pope. Look, no, there they... were three Catholics on the Supreme Court who didn't show up for his speech in Congress today. Those would be Samuel Alito, Antonin Scalia, and Clarence Thomas. I mean, that seemed like a pretty wow. resounding That's set outrageous. of outrageous. I didn't I, realize yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it seems, John, people can decide they don't like the Pope, right? They can. It is, um, it's a little trickier, it should be a little trickier, the more devout, the more sort of... Um, Demount, the more you de devout and judgmental you are. Well, I mean, it depends. <laughs> it's if you've been uh, so strict in the way you um, interpret things, then it seems to me you you can't just come up with your own view about the Pope. Um, it would seem harder for a strict constructionalist to kind of excise the Pope than a, than a kind of more liberal Catholic who would be like, oh, I take a I take a little of this, I take a little of that, and that's. Um, that's what I believe. I mean, but the, the 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 American Catholic experience is much more the cafeteria Catholic, who, you know, I mean, in the nineteen in nineteen sixty, um, all the bishops, or I guess nineteen fifty nine, the American bishops were uh, asked about birth control, and they said, "Oh no, American Catholics would ever use birth control." And then the pill was um, made legal, and Catholics were using it like crazy, and it and it caused quite a, a moment of challenge for the um, priests and nuns because the flock was not behaving in the way that they thought it should, and that's then, of course, true with capital punishment and abortion and other issues in which people are separate from whatever the church you know positions are. But why, so okay, Emily, why was it a why has it been triumphant so far? Well, first of all, talk about personal appeal. I mean, he seems to have so much of it. He is like super good at kissing babies and walking around and just making people feel like they're in this very special, you know, potentially divine and benign presence. And then I think the fact that he has been saying things that 
liberals are so happy to hear a pope say about climate change, about taking care of refugees, about poverty and capitalism and inequality expands his appeal to people who normally wouldn't pay that much attention to him. I mean, so the rabbi at my synagogue devoted his whole Yom Kippur day sermon to the Pope and like the history of Jewish Catholic relations and why he feels really hopeful about we're it right now. And he's like, a, no. we're joining. John. Can we have membership? The, uh, Can we get like a, a membership in the club? <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> Ancillary membership. Yeah. So I think, I we mean, the biggest, there on Christmas, though. The, we can help work. We'll help work out. We'll it, help. We'll, we'll like serve on Christmas. The, um, <laughs> I think the, we'll uh, the, the, the I think the uh, the Pope's message is that you serve all the other days other than Christmas, not just on Christmas. But um, you know, I think the the Christian affection for him is that basically he is the be- behaving the way uh, either in the things he does, like stepping out of mass to go embrace a severely disfigured man and then kissing him and praying with him. Um, he is behaving the way people would think Jesus might behave. And he's taking the entire huge lens of the Catholic Church and saying, focus on what Jesus says. You know, if you have like, uh, just go, you know, read the Beatitudes and behave like that. And that that is a returning home to kind of the purest part of Christianity in a lot of people's minds. And to have somebody acting that way and celebrating that and doing all the things he does, little and small, to keep the focus there on love and on decency and dignity, that's... uh, it feels warm for people who sometimes feel the church is kind of off doing some weird thing or and obviously the church the catholic church itself is fractured and has had you know serious issues with um pedophile priests so um that's another you know that that adds another d- d- element to the extent that you can be in the news for something else other than something bad has also been good of is it possible term. for this pope to be non-political so my rabbi's argument was that it's important to understand his declarations and teachings on moral terms kind of apart from the partisan political universe and yet yeah. you know uh, once you show up and hang out with President Obama and talk about American policy, you've sort of crossed that line, Well, no? popes have always crossed the c- political line. Um, I think that his argument would be that the thing he is most uh, fixated on is the human being. And so whether it's the unborn child or the death row inmate or the immigrant, um, if you look at his remarks in front of Congress when he talked about accepting the human who is trying to get into your country or who is in your country uh, illegally, that you should just blow past the policy and deal with the fact that there's a human life here and to treat that life the same uh, and with all the respect and dignity it deserves because it is a life to just and that and that if you want to attach a policy, you want to attach an ideology to that human life, uh, go ahead, but I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned with treating every human life with that uh, yeah. level of dignity. I mean, it's funny. I, obviously, politically, I'm very sympathetic and aligned with, with his overall message on immigration or on climate or on inequality, but the, the actual – those didn't move me. What moved me is exactly what you just talked about, John, is this this idea that, that our, our highest duty is to people is just to, you know, to treat – human beings with dignity and respect and, and humility. Um, not that, I mean, not that I'm doing that, not that I, I managed to live that life, but like I, it's it certainly, that was what spoke to me. It wasn't the fact that, Oh, the Pope, the Pope believes in climate change. Hurrah. We're going to get some good legislation out of it. That, that seemed unimportant and, and distracting in fact, from this message, all the things. And when I think about this Pope, I think about him, you know, the phone calls he makes to people or the specific human actions he makes, um, that is so incredibly powerful, and the the political stuff seems it just doesn't seem useful in the same way that the the human behavior seems. And I uh, one thing that was, amused me about his speech to Congress was that um, speaking of cafeteria Catholics, so there's the normal uh, drama that we um, 
false drama that we associate with State of the Unions where people will clap for one thing or another. But I mean, in this case, you had the ideological views kind of clapping for one sentence, which is to say, this is the word of God, and then not clapping for the next sentence because no, that we don't believe in that. So it was like cafeteria Catholicism in through, through applause. It was, uh, it was I fantastic. Actually, I actually felt, I found that speech to Congress hilarious. Someone said to me, this is like a scene from Veep, that because his accent was so thick, you couldn't, Half the time you didn't, I didn't understand exactly what he was yeah. saying, and people would be getting getting up and cheering, and you and you would think, well, I hope they're they're clapping for the thing that they think they're clapping for, because I Did sure he didn't say understand Doris what he day said. Or Dorothy Day, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Doris Day would be very. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I loved his reworking of uh, Matthew seven when he said, uh, we, "The yardstick we use for others will be the yardstick which time will use for us," and the fact that he used time instead of God. I wondered if that was a choice or just, you know, he was just looking for words and those are the ones. Because it's a big difference. Um, because when you speak of how time will judge us, you can get a bigger audience than you can speak to a secular audience right. in that, in that yeah. uh, when you use that word. But if you use God, uh, you, you li- limit it. And uh, I thought that was fascinating if that was an was, was actual choice. Do you guys think there will be any political upshot of this? Will any political candidates use the Pope for their benefit? Will there be actual legislation which will draw on this? Will this change political opinion in specific ways that causes action in this country or or not? I don't feel like it translates directly. I feel like the politicians who perhaps should be moved by him because... I mean, I guess because they're Catholic and you're supposed to listen to the Pope are going to figure out a way to just ignore the things they don't want to follow. There will just be silence, a deafening silence on climate policy, for example. Or then the other thing people say is like, oh, well, he shouldn't be entering into this political realm. I just don't. I feel like it's this amazingly wonderful feel good moment for the country. And I'm really enjoying it. But maybe this picks up on what you were saying before, David, that his power is to get us to think about these very human interactions rather than really like affecting policy and politics. Well, we're going to, uh, I'll be interviewing John Boehner this weekend, um, who was clearly moved by, he's worked his basically whole life in Congress to get the Pope to come. He was, he was a mess for, for the period, particularly when they went out on the balcony and it'll be, I'm interested in somebody who, for whom the faith, faith is, a very serious part of his life and his tradition, and and yet, um, when you say he was a mess, do you mean he was crying? I mean, he was crying. I mean, he was do? he was emotionally <laughs> overcome by the presence of the Pope, at, and um, and I mean that yeah, in the best John possible Bader way. Is John going to have an epiphany and suddenly be like, "Oh, we need to pass laws to you know control yeah. carbon dioxide emissions"? I, just I, I think. See it. Well, well, well. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. But it's um, it'll be, it's interesting to see where people draw their own lines, and so. Um, and why and how we all get inspiration and then where we choose to have it stop. Because obviously he was emotionally, um, uh, you know, engaged with this visit. And yet, as you say, it's unlikely he's going to have. And that's but but I guess my point is that that is the Catholic experience is that you can have devout Catholics who would have that same emotional reaction uh, and yet who don't feel like the every word the Pope says is they must go march in that direction. And so. Right. And to be fair, Democrats work? who are Catholics are making are also picking and choosing. I mean, they're yeah. not going to follow his teachings oh, totally. on abortion and birth control. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I meant the cafeteria, cafeteria Catholicism goes both ways. It's both yeah. the Republicans and the Democrats, which, again, misses the point of the Pope's main argument, which is pay attention to the human. And so, you know, that'll be, it'll be interesting if that gets through. I weirdly, I I didn't see very much of his visit, but I saw a bit of him uh, on TV this morning at the gym. He was outside the... He was at your gym? He was the at Pope the gym. Was, at your was gym? he on the elliptical machine next to you? I did have the you? thought, does the Pope... Because the Pope, he looks a little bit overweight, whether he works out. And if the Pope works out, what does he work out in? I had a friend who's a priest and he you know what no he lifts closely. david he lifts souls yeah but you know is that cardio is that more cardio or is that um i feel like it's too you know profane working out why is working out profane i mean no why? no I don't no, know. no the I body is a temple we are made in god's image so you want to you know keep it uh keep it trim he loves soccer god, he's god. a huge soccer fan if they, that's true I, anyway, I was at the gym, but I was—I I <laughs> I found myself—I was tearing up. I'm like a secular Jew, 
And I was watching on some small TV, watching the Pope. But you like, know, just what is that hand. about? Why, Why are so many up? secular Americans and Jews having? Is that just like, oh, we're so excited that he <laughs> seems like he's nicer and more on our side than the last guy? No, I, to me, it is totally the human. Can I don't the climate <laughs> okay. change stuff doesn't mean anything. It is totally watching somebody make human connections. And and as you say, John, I mean, I you know, Jesus. He's he's just like a guy for me, but if, if, but you're living a <laughs> life like is Jesus just is all right incredible. with you. Yeah, I mean, right. Well, if, that is true. If you could live, right. right? You could be presumably, and these people uh, exist in droves, which are people who behave like Jesus and don't believe in him at all. And that's so. That's I don't know about the in droves part of that. Sentence, oh, there are the totally of lots of you know secular and and atheists who are wonderful to their you know fellow man, devote their entire life to service and helping others, and you know are totally selfless and oh I think those people do exist in big numbers. No of course they exist and I don't think whether you're observant and religious has any bearing on whether you're one of those people. I just wish there were more of them. Yeah yeah well amen to that. Okay let's move on to cocktail chatter. I don't know what the Pope, the Pope definitely is a boozer. I'm sure he drinks. He definitely drinks. He's an Argentine. He's a soccer fan. He's a man who loves life. I'm sure he drinks. So if you He's definitely drinking at every basically every mass that he um, performs. That's right. Uh, well, John, if you were having a, if you were having an, an actual cocktail with uh, the Pope, what might you chatter to him about? Yeah, I don't think I'd chatter about this, but <laughs> but um, I'd be asking you know for a lot of intercessions. Um, hold on, I, I can't find the. Um, I was I just called up the article and now it disappeared. Hold on, the Pope is holding for you, John. Don't worry. Yeah, right. Why isn't it loading here? Oh, okay. So um, as we all know from endless years of listening to the GapFest, I'm fascinated with with attention span and focus. And so there was this fascinating new, um, uh, or it's not a new, disco- well, it's a new discovery. It's a new synthesis of research that was done on uh, the use of uh, a video game called NeuroRacer to create increased focus and attention. Now, we've heard a lot, and there's been a lot written about computer games. Luminosity, I think, is the name of one uh, uh, service where basically it's like a bunch of brain teasers that are supposed to help you focus and help with your memory. But in but in studies, what they've found is basically all these games do is help you become better at playing stupid computer games. But the what this study, um, and it was done, it's a ginormous study, what they what they seem to have discovered, the most significant contribution of the study, is that it rebuts two – it does two things. One, it rebuts the view that an individual's capacity is fixed, that your cognitive capacity can't be grown. It suggests that your cognitive capacity can be grown. And then secondly, it um, finds that you can – by playing this game, which is basically a road racing game in which it gets increasingly harder as you master it, and basically the terrain shifts and you have to keep – a lot of balls in the air as you're going. And some for some reason, they found that your ability to focus in playing this game is then transferable to other things in your life. And that was the key problem with the luminosity stuff is that it was not transferable. You could get really good at the game, but then you couldn't remember the grocery list or you couldn't write on deadline in a room full of um, screaming reporters. And so... This um, this obviously has uh, huge implications for the elderly, but also people as they get older, which I didn't know. But apparently as we get into our like late 20s, not only do we have uh, problems with memory and focus, but the ramp up, the, the pain of switching from one task to the other, the mental and cognitive irritation that comes from writing a story and then switching over to go play the guitar it gets harder as you get older to switch cognitive tasks. And so this, presumably, apparently, will make that easier. And then obviously it could help with kids with ADHD and that kind of thing. So this video game, which I think they're trying to make some um, more public version, this is only now in the laboratory environment. But we could all be like on the subway instead of playing Candy Crush, we could play uh, Neuro Racer and uh, be a, a much better society and have more time to... I don't um, play Candy Crush on the subway. Do you play Candy Crush? No, I don't play no, anything no. either. No, no, no. no I listen but to I mean, podcasts. Yeah, no, I, I, like I don't play Neuro any games. Racer is the perfect name for this. Yeah. It makes it like 10 times more appealing. I also feel like this is hogwash in a way to just get us to spend more time on screens. But um, I know nothing about it. Yeah, I mean... Sure. I mean, I'm sure that, that somebody will say it's hogwash, but the um, but the study was, it seemed at a least based study. on what I read in uh, the piece in Nature, um, seemed to suggest that it had a lot of methodological heft behind it. 
Well, how nice if a video game could improve our cognitive ability. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's like the holy grail of video games. I know. Right? You can imagine, like, it turns <laughs> out that if you smoke a carton of camels, play a video game, and drink a fifth of bourbon, you'll uh, be able to, you know, you'll be the next pope. Emily, what is your chatter? I am reading a very enjoyable book from a kind of unlikely source. It's called Number Four Imperial Lane. It is by Jonathan Wiseman, who is one of the mainstays of the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. And it's really literary and fun and written in such an entirely different voice from, you know, newspaper reporting that I'm just like wowed by by Jonathan's ability to do this and just really like reading along with great enjoyment. It's a story of an American who is decides to stay in Britain because he has fallen in love, but also it's about his entanglement with a family of of sort of fallen aristocrats. They're called the Bromwells and he is taking care of the the brother who is um a quadriplegic and getting all enmeshed in their twisted family history. Um I'm like halfway through, and I really recommend it. Number four, Imperial Lane by Jonathan Wiseman. Okay. I want to chat about something which has been talked up on probably about four different Slate podcasts, and I almost didn't do it because it's been talked up so much, but it is so good that I just have to I have to talk it up some more, which is there's a podcast called You Must Remember This by Karina Longworth. It's a, um, it's a history of Hollywood podcast, and she did a 12-part series this uh, spring and summer about the Manson murders. And you just can't believe how great it is. It's like hardcore history meets entertainment tonight. Meets it, whistle stop. Meets whistle stop. It is, it's, Got that in there. It's whistle stop meets entertainment tonight. It is it is a just a fantastic retelling of this incredibly crazy moment in American yeah. history. And uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I, I gobbled it up. It's... it's uh, it's great. So you must remember this by Karina Longworth. Have you listened to it, John? I haven't, but I, uh, I um, I've heard so much about it, and also that you know the Manson murders and the period in American culture, and I can imagine how beautifully and well rendered that could be. And um, it's amazing the shit that happened in American history. Anyway, all right, our intern is Tark Barrett, and if you want to be our intern, email us at. Gabfest at slate.com with your resume and uh, and cover letter for our paid internship, paid part-time internship. Our producer this week is Jason DeLeon. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is slate.com slash Gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address, again, where you're going to send your excellent internship application is gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week.